This is History 605, where we discuss everything from Crazy Horse to cyberspace. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the South Dakota State Historical Society. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605. Today, what we are discussing is South Dakota's Constitution, and it's uh, as the state's basic law. It explains how the government is to be organized and the rights of its citizens. So we're going to talk about the history of this important document with someone who's uh, got a unique insight into that. Uh, former Chief Justice David Gilberton is the former South Dakota Supreme Court Chief Justice, originally from Sisseton and a graduate of SDSU and USD Law School. He was appointed to the state Supreme Court by Governor Janklow in 1995. His colleagues elected him Chief Justice in 2001, and he was retained in that capacity by the voters until last January when legally required to retire. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Mr. Chief Justice. You're welcome. I don't know how many other jobs are in statute that they have a mandatory retirement date. Is this, is this the only <laughs> position in state government that has a mandatory retirement age? As far as I know, it is. Uh, all judges have to retire when they reach 70, and then there's a quirk in the law that says you can stay the next general election. Okay. And uh, I happen to be born in 1949. An odd year, all general elections are in even years. Uh -huh. So I stayed on uh, because COVID had come on right. uh, as a problem. I stayed on till the very end just to try to keep the system, court system going. Sure. And, well, what I, I thought I'd uh, chat with you today about is, is the history of the Constitution and specifically how the Constitution has changed, um, not only during its writing process, which was kind of elongated for reasons we can go into in a bit, but then since the adoption of the Constitution in 1889. So I was wondering if, you know, the, the founding fathers, Madison, Adams, and so forth that were at the U.S. Constitutional Convention, who are some of the leading lights at the South Dakota State's Constitutional Convention, the first one that was held in 1883? And what were they most concerned about that needed to be in? And uh, what was the nature of their thinking? Well, the 1883 Constitutional Convention was not an esoteric exercise. There was a strong movement in the southern part of Dakota Territory for what was later to become South Dakota to become a state. Mm -hmm. You couldn't be a state if you didn't have a state constitution. Sure. That was required. So the goal in 1883 was to... Uh, nudge the federal government into creating the state of South Dakota by having a constitutional convention. The view was that if the local Dakotans presented that document to Congress, Congress would pass a law and recognize South Dakota to be a state. In fact, there had been bills in Congress way back to 1872 okay. trying to uh, make South Dakota a state. They never went anywhere. Mm -hmm. But this group that organized the 1883 convention was mainly, uh, they called them the Yankton oligarchy because Yankton had been the territorial capital until recently. There was Reverend Joseph Ward, who was uh, later the founder of Yankton College, mm -hmm. Hugh Campbell, who was the U.S. attorney, uh, Alonzo Edgerton, who was the uh, chief justice of the Dakota Territory Supreme Court. Okay. And the one key player that wasn't from uh, the Yankton area was Arthur Millette, who was from Watertown and later would become our first governor. Right. They organized a convention, uh, and uh, it was held in Sioux Falls. Uh, 
at Germania Hall, mm-hmm. and um, uh, most of the counties sent delegates, and they sat there and uh, basically created a constitution. And they did not just wholesale borrow Illinois or Iowa's or some other state mm-hmm. that was already in existence. They really put a lot of work into it. And if you look at the constitutional debates in 1883, and unfortunately a lot of it isn't available anymore, but it's very curious that they uh, picked and chose between the various states as to what they thought it would uh, be appropriate. Um, and uh, then they did create a constitution in 1883, and they submitted it to the federal government for approval. There was a uh, rump group of what you'd call radicals that just said, uh, we'll just declare ourselves a state, and the federal government can like it or not, and we'll <laughs> act as a state. <laughs> right. Fortunately, the cooler head said, uh, no, that's not a way to impress Congress, and we'll never get to be a state <laughs> if we do that. Right. So they sent the uh, the 1883 Constitution into Washington, D.C. They had two problems. One was Nehemiah Ordway, who is considered by many somewhat of a scoundrel, was the uh-huh. territorial governor. He opposed it, stated. Yeah. And uh, also uh, the uh, Democrats controlled either the House or the Senate, and they, were, they could count. Yeah. They knew that most of the Dakota Territory population, in those days only men were allowed to vote, were probably Civil War veterans, mm-hmm. all going to vote the party of Lincoln. And if they let in South Dakota and North Dakota, that was four more Republican senators in the Senate, and they didn't right. think that was to their advantage. Right. So the bottom line is in 1883, the document just died in Congress. Okay. It went nowhere. Okay. Uh, my wife's family has a letter from one of those Civil War veterans that uh, homesteaded in Lincoln County and. He wrote it to his brother saying, um, uh, there's a sentence in that letter that we have that says, vote for Grant, he'll keep the Rebs down. So it's very much uh, uh, veterans were, were uh, going to vote Republican. That was clear. Right. In those days, uh, if, you, if you look at the biographies of the early uh, movers and shakers in Dakota Territory, virtually every one of them was a Civil War veteran, mm-hmm. needless to say, on the Union side. Right. And uh, the... Grand Army of the Republic, which was their veterans organization, if you didn't have their blessing in a uh, territorial-wide election, you were not going to win. Right, right. So it goes to Washington. Uh, does it get uh, – is there any legislative action or just no action that kind of kills it? Uh, basically, it just lays there. Okay. And so then, then at the end, end of the congressional session, that's it. You're done. Yeah. So they get back together in 1885, and uh, what, right. what was the hope at that point? At that point, uh, first off, Governor Ord- Ordway had been sacked, and he was gone. Okay. okay. And so that was a, a plus. <laughs> yeah. And they were hoping that they could convince Grover Cleveland, who was the president, even though he was a Democrat, uh, that they thought he might be favorable. Uh-huh. So they had a second constitutional convention in 1885, once again in Sioux Falls. Mm-hmm. And mainly the, the players were pretty much the same, Yeah. Uh, key players. And... The 1885 convention is really important because that's the actual drafting and writing of the South Dakota Constitution. And um, we do have the debates of most of what they talked about. And once again, they picked and chose from various states what they thought was appropriate for South Dakota. Uh, In the end, uh, they approved the document. 
and sent it off to D.C. once again. And unfortunately, uh, the Democrats in the House, and they controlled the House, could still count. Mm-hmm. And they said, we don't need four more Republican senators. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it did pass the Senate. But it didn't pass the House because the Senate was controlled by the Republicans Mm -hmm. and the House by the Democrats. So unfortunately for a second time, uh, the proponents came up empty. Uh, But the document is still very important because, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but in 1889 when we actually approved the Constitution, it's basically the 1885 Constitution that's approved. Okay. So the issues of the day... um, Women's suffrage is a big issue in, in the nation. Right. Uh, temperance and prohibition is a big issue. Um, mm-hmm. Veterans benefits and pensions and so forth. And then the other typical things. How do those things shake out in those in those debates, whether they're in or out? Um, the 1883 convention, interestingly, discussed women's suffrage. They discussed mm-hmm. prohibition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, they there was some minor discussion. We think about initiative and referendum. There was also a fight over whether there was large amounts of public lands that were supposed to be sold at some point for the improvement of schools. And General Beadle stepped in and insisted that no land could be sold for uh, less than $10 an acre, which at that time was goodly sum. In some of the other states, they were selling it to speculators for 50 cents an acre. So those were the big issues. None of those issues, like prohibition, uh, women's suffrage, initiative, and referendum, actually make it into the constitutions of 1883, 85, or 89, but they hang around Mm -hmm. uh, because they're important issues, and ultimately all of them are enacted. Right. Was was the thinking that just keep keep our heads down and we'll try to get a constitution through the U.S. at the federal level and then come back and sort this out? It was probably— Excuse me for interrupting. It's probably more that they wanted to get, there had to be a statewide public vote on it. And they did not want to alienate any blocks of voters uh, because um, uh, prohibition was very controversial. And um, so if they put prohibition in there, that was probably going to be the death knell of trying to get a majority to approve it, the Constitution. Um, there were significant votes uh, in in. All three were approved in state elections, 83, 85, and 89, mm-hmm. but there were a lot of people that voted no. Uh, it would, usually it would pass like two to one, mm-hmm. but, I mean, that was it was not unanimous by any means. Mm-hmm. And uh, part of the federal law, you mentioned federal lands and so forth. Much, much of that federal land is being turned into Indian reservations as, as all well, this no, is going No, this was, this was appropriated for the state's to use for educational purposes, it was going to be sold off at some oh, point. Okay. And we still have some school and public lands uh, you know, in the state, but yes. a lot of it was being sold off. Yeah. Um, and uh, no, this had, it was not reservation federal land. Okay. That was a different issue. Okay, okay. In fact, we had to put in, the federal government mandated that in order for South Dakota to become a state, we had to agree that we would uh, not claim any jurisdiction over uh, the Indian reservations in South okay. Dakota. Okay. Yeah, that that comes up in some of the documents I've seen about the first uh, the first legislative uh, session and so forth. Those is um, kind of ramifications of settling Indian reservations or the desire to open that land up. I guess mm-hmm. that's uh, 
clearly off limits at that point. Well, it was and it wasn't. The Congress at various times would disestablish a reservation or diminish it, and if it did, then lands that were not allocated for the individual tribal members could be opened up uh, for sale to uh, settlers. I'm originally from Sisseton. Yes. Uh, that's what happened up there in 1892. They disestablished the reservation. Every Native American got a quarter of land, and the rest of it was sold off to uh, white settlers. Okay. Wow. And then, so as far as Indian voting rights, how, does, how did that play out in these constitutional debates? They probably didn't get to vote. Um, at, at, in the 1880s, uh, Native Americans were not considered U.S. citizens. Uh -huh. They were wards of the federal government. And I think it's 1935, the Indian Reorganization Act is when finally the federal government recognizes Native Americans as f full citizens of the United States. Okay. Um, you mentioned earlier the referendum and initiative and so forth of being a part of that. That comes in the later after the Constitution is, is and right. state enters the Union. Um, can you take us through the circumstances that led to South Dakota being the first one to do sure. such a thing? Um, as you mentioned, we were the first state in the country to adopt initiative and referendum. It comes out of the populist movement of the uh, 1890s. Uh, they actually elected a governor. Governor Andrew Lee was a populist. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they, so in 1898, they amended the South Dakota Constitution to allow for initiative and referendum, we being then the first state in the country to do that. Um, one thing that's probably not well understood is that it only allowed for initiative and referendum of statutes. We didn't amend the South Dakota Constitution to allow initiative and referendum of constitutional provisions until 1972. Okay. Uh, Why well, I don't want to get into the specifics of it, uh, current controversy that's in the courts over uh, the legalization of marijuana prior to 1972 would not have been allowed because it amended the South Dakota Constitution pre previously to uh, 1972. That wasn't permitted, but it is now. Yeah. So uh, that... And originally, when it came in in 1898, it was kind of dormant. Um, they mm -hmm. uh, first time it gets used is in 1912 when they um, uh, create primary elections for the first time. Oh. But from 1912 till about 1978, um, there isn't a single initiative uh, or a referendum uh, that occurs in South Dakota. It's just dormant. Wow. And then after. Um, uh, 1978, you know, it starts getting uh, rejuvenated, and now, of course, they're substantial. Uh, I think I checked, and there's like 20 issues that have made it to the statewide ballot mm -hmm. for initiative and referendum, and there's probably more coming. So it's uh, uh, effectively used by certain people uh, for certain issues now, but for most of our history, it was simply dormant. Right, and do you know off the top of your head how many states have a similar uh, initiative and referendum? I think about half. Okay. Um, generally, states the Midwest that became states later, uh, it's not as popular, if I remember right, in the what we'll call the colonial states in the East Coast mm -hmm. and that, because they didn't have a history of it. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, about half the states, I think, have it. Okay. And this was 
kind of meant as a I suppose, Governor Lee uh, led the charge on this, or, or were other? Yes, he did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and was this yeah. a, a way to kind of um, go around the legislature on issues that he thought were important? Oh, it it probably was to allow direct democracy that right. the people could propose or be the ultimate judges of uh, legislative actions uh, if it was referred or propose it if it was an initiative. Uh, direct, direct democracy is probably the best term for it. Yeah. Um, that was the purpose. And uh, did they, you know, when you go into the voting booth now on some of these things, the, the description of what you're voting for goes on for a page and a half or so. Did they discuss mm-hmm. the complexity of these issues? Is that Was that something that, um, were those who were opposed to it brought up, I imagine, that, that how can people um, understand these complex issues? And I have not read any definitive discussion of the debates in 1898 that led to okay. uh, the adoption of it. It may, but I simply don't know. Okay. Um, so it, you say the Constitution then, did it remain, uh, it, it had that change in 1898 and then uh, 1912, what were other areas or other times of uh, changing the Constitution? Well, uh, one of the major ones uh, is 1972. Uh, the original court system that had been set up in 1889 was clearly archaic. It wasn't working well. It was dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody really had control over uh, the entire system. And uh, a lot of the judges, you didn't even need law degrees. Uh, they wow. just became a justice of the peace, and that was it. Wow. And um, so... Uh, it clearly wasn't working, and there was a Blue Ribbon Commission that was established to uh, rewrite the judicial article and to go with a unified court system where everybody from top to bottom, if you worked in the court system, it was under the supervision and budgetary authority of the South Dakota Supreme Court. Okay. And um, that was, there were a lot of very distinguished South Dakotans on it. Lawrence Stavig, president of Augustana, uh, Dr. Farber from the government uh, oh, right. department USD. at USD. Yeah. Um, I think J.P. Hendrickson from SDSU was on it. Um, judge Mildred Mikey, the only woman judge in the state at the time, was on it. And interestingly, there there's still one living member of that commission, and that was Governor Harvey Woolman, who at the time oh. was a very young, like 30 years old, and he wow. was a state senator. They put him on. Uh-huh. I've talked to him a little bit about it. It's very interesting what he has to say. Uh, there are minutes of their meetings that we've looked at that give us some guidance. Uh, Judge John Fosheim from Huron was on it. And so they rewrote the entire article to make what's called a unified court system. It's supervised by the South Dakota Supreme Court. There's one budget for the entire court system. And um, uh, so that uh, was put up to the voters and it was approved. And uh, 1974, I believe, and then so 1975, after it's approved, it becomes our current court system. Okay. And uh, Governor Knipe uh, also reorganized state government at the, about the same time. Right. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember the exact number, but there were like 200 independent boards that really were, uh, nobody was in charge. Each board did what it kind of wanted to, yeah. and... Um, it was it was a mess, uh, and so the proposal was that to have 
a similar system for the executive branch, the governor being the chief executive officer of the state, uh, being the ultimate supervisor of boards and bureaus. Obviously, they have certain independent functions, uh, but that uh, it would be more organized. Um, there's one interesting story that uh, I was told when I first went on the Supreme Court that at one time there was a rattlesnake problem in western South Dakota, so they hired a person called the rattlesnake inspector. And if you were a rancher in western South Dakota, you called him up for his house and said, hey, I've got rattlesnakes out here. And he would come out and faithfully do in the rattlesnakes, and <laughs> everybody was happy. Well, somehow sure. with all these boards and everything, they lost track of him. They didn't know he existed. And um, he was still getting paid. And he was doing a great job. Nobody was complaining. Uh-huh. And it would But if you looked in the books in Pierre, there was no. There's no Nobody knew that he existed. So finally, <laughs> he decided he needs a new pickup. So he sends in a request for a new pickup and signs it State Rattlesnake Inspector. Uh-huh. And they thought it was a joke. They thought it was somebody. <laughs> you know, come on, there's no state rattlesnake inspector. Well, yes, there was. And um, that's how disorganized things were. They were wow. paying him. He was doing a great job, yeah. but nobody knew he existed. He was his own man. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it can get kind of uh, kind of nuts. I think uh, my, my previous job as Secretary of Education was kind of created out of this reorganization within Governor Knipes, um, which had been the... the um, Superintendent of Public Instruction, which was a statewide elected official, so that that took mm-hmm. a constant, constitutional change as well to make that a gubernatorial appointment. You know, that's it's interesting because North and South Dakota, you'd think are similar, mm-hmm. became states on the same day. But if you look at North Dakota state government, their superintendent of uh, public instruction, their insurance commissioner, they're all still elected public officials. Yes, they are. Whereas in South Dakota. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, it's part of the executive branch. Right, right. Um, and there are still a lot of boards and commissions, but I think hopefully we know mm-hmm. where the rattlesnake inspector is. So, Right. He's uh, probably still doing a good job. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, there's, there's plenty of work for him. Uh, well, I guess if there's a story arc to this, uh, the change over time of the Constitution, is you think it has it, maybe the particularly with the initiative and referendum that was a, a threat that was exercised and implemented and then lightly used until the 1970s. What what was in the air in the 60s and 70s that um, other than maybe creaky institutions that needed to be reformed? Do you think there was anything else driving that change? You know, I, it's total speculation. I mean, that's the time you've got Vietnam going, you've got public protests. All of a sudden people are very... Uh, mm-hmm. aware of what government's doing, and if they don't like it, they are now willing to do something directly about it. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, years of the Eisenhower administration were different. I mean, uh, but starting in the 1970s, if you lived through that time, there was uh, a lot of uh, interest in government. There were mm-hmm. a lot of interest in issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, in those days, too, the um, uh, two political parties in South Dakota were, from time to time, fairly even as far as their numbers in the legislature. You had Governor Knipe, a Democrat, being a governor. Um, it was uh, more of a two-party state, and uh, there was a lot of interest in politics. Right. Well, and there was um, the 
Governor Knipe's effort to get a state income tax failed by one vote, I think. And uh, right, and uh, it did. So it was close. Yeah, it was kind of the opposite of perhaps the way many things are now with with that. Um, but that um, engendered uh, some reform. And and uh, do you think things are uh, going back to 1889? Um, the government work. Uh, in the 70s, the or the reforms that were made then um, probably matched the climate of the times better than the 1880s. Well, well clearly there is a, uh, a view of some uh, voters in South Dakota that uh, they feel shut out of the legislative process because of the legislature's political composition mm -hmm. and that they think it's uh, more likely to get a statute that they want adopted but by doing it the initiative and referendum route right um initiative i mean not referendum yeah but and uh, they've done it now for uh statutes and uh also to amend the constitution right. uh, the constitution's been amended uh, significantly um uh the victims uh all oh, right what's the name her name again there's uh -huh. a name for it yes Somebody's law, anyway. Right. Uh, that that was passed a couple of years ago, and now the the marijuana issues, mm -hmm. um, and that um, that people are uh, they're organized and are willing to uh, to do the work it takes to get these uh, on the ballot and um, uh, for the voters' consideration. Right. Right. And I think the other thing that maybe has changed is that the voters are more inclined to approve these. Um, Historically, uh, a lot of these failed. Right. Uh, if they could even get them on the ballot, you know, the old adage, when in doubt, vote no. Right. So, um, uh, that might be changing. But that, I believe it probably is. Yeah. Well, Mr. Chief Justice, thanks for joining us today. It's been a great conversation, and um, we appreciate your service to the state of South Dakota, certainly, and uh, wish you well. well I enjoyed it. It was fun. Great. Nice trip down memory lane. So thanks to our sponsor, the South Dakota Historical Society Foundation, and our partner, the South Dakota Public Broadcasting. But most importantly, thanks to you, the listener of this show. As always, if you like the show, please share it with friends and help us get the word out. The South Dakota Historical Society can be found on the web at history.sd.gov, and we'd appreciate you checking us out. Now go do some history. <laughs>